We're just going to, sorry, we're just going to swap places so that you can see our guest experts um, rather than me. Okay. Let's get this web conference underway. Tēnā koutou katoa. Greetings everyone, haere mai and welcome to the Kōkākō virtual field trip. I'm Shelley the Learns field trip teacher and it's just after 2.15 on Thursday the 21st of June and I'd like to introduce our guest experts for this field trip. Today we've got, you've met Claire of course from the Porongia Te Aro Aro Okahu Restoration Society and we've got Tony Roxborough from the Waipa District Council. And if you'd like to know more about our experts, you can check out their profiles on the expert page. I think Tony's going to give me his profile today. <laughs> so that will be online for you uh, tomorrow. So you can check that out and find out a bit more about his work. So at the moment, we are at the Waipa District Council, and that's in Te Awamutu. And we've had a busy morning at Pūrekireki Marae and found out how iwi have helped restore Porongia Maonga and you can find out about that by watching the videos online tomorrow. So it's a great day here in Te Awamutu. The sun is shining and we can, if we look outside the building, see Porongia Maonga, so great part of the country to be in. Welcome along to everybody who has taken part in our Zoom meeting room this afternoon. It's great to see your webcams on and great to get questions in from who we've got taking part this afternoon. We've got... Karori Normal School and Cambridge East School. So there are speaking schools for this afternoon. And of course, at the end, there'll be the opportunity to ask extra questions. So I do have a bit of a story to tell about our ambassadors. Naughty Bob and Maya yesterday, who in Puriora got so excited about Kōkākō that they managed to get left behind as they were chasing the call of Kōkākō, but I have some evidence here from Dave who went and rescued them, found them in the bush. Here they are, don't know if you can see that, I'm holding it up to the webcam. We can see Dave there, he's got a speaker and he's got Bob and Maya rescued from the bush after they chased Kōkākō. So, they're still on Periora. They're not with us right now, but they're having a great time trying to locate more Kokako, and they may even catch some tomorrow to release here in Porongia. So they're having a, an adventure of their own, which is great for them. <laughs> We're just glad that they got safely rescued. Anyway, we'll get started with our questions. We'll start with Karori Normal School. And if you can say your name so we know who we're talking to, just your first name's good. And question number one, please. Hi. My name's Sam. Um, what will you do to the habitat? Are you going to plant trees that Coca-Cola like, or are they already there? Kia ora, Sam. Who okay. would like to answer that? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Sam. Um, we don't need to plant any more trees that um, would be producing food for the kōkākō because we know that they're already there on Mount Pirongia. Before we um, could get the green light to bring kōkākō back, we had to have done a habitat assessment 
So um, people that know a lot about plants and trees, they, they walked through the um, low-piste area that we had on Mount Pirongia, and at, say, every 100 metres or so, they, they would walk a, another line, um, and every 10 metres they'd stop and have a look all the way around um, where they were standing and count the number of trees that they knew that Kokako would like. So they recorded things like, um, I think, um, Coprosna grandifloria and uh, pigeonwood. And another thing that they really like are epiphytes because there's lots of little insects that are living there that they also like to eat. So we, we don't have to do a planning program because that habitat assessment confirmed that there's plenty of food sources there for the kokako so they could um, become nice, fat, heavy birds, be very healthy, and that they'd have the capacity to raise really healthy chicks as well. Excellent. And it might be that you know of a habitat near where you live and you want to find out what lives in that, and you could do a bit of an assessment of your habitat as well, look at what lives there, what plants grow, all that sort of thing, and then see if if there's any species in particular that need your help. Great way to start with a habitat assessment. Thanks, Claire. And thanks, Sam, for that great question to start. And now we'll move to Chris, question number one from Cambridge East School, please. As, oh, hi, I'm Regan. As we live so close to Mount Peronia, what is it that we can do to help? Oh, Good wow. Questions. Yeah, I love to hear questions like that. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, we're always looking for people to help us. Uh, in fact, we rely completely on volunteers to um, come and monitor key species like rats and possums and also do five-minute bird counts so we know um, the birds that, that are in the forest for us and to see whether or not they're, they're increasing in number or decreasing. Um, we do bait station filling on um, a few Saturday mornings over the spring, and um, we'd be quite happy for kids to come along, especially that they'd need an adult with them, um, but because there's no physical touching of, of the, the baits with the toxin on them, we, we think it's safe for um, children to be involved in that. Um, and we're also um, always looking for opportunities to promote what we're doing, and so I think schools can do great work by just um, featuring some of our, our work in, in, in what um, projects they do um, as part of their schoolwork, or I know there's a school that's thinking about doing a production about um, Mount Pirongia and the story of the kōkako there. So um, yeah, great um, imaginative ways that, that you can um, raise the, the I, I suppose, get the story need to do to protect our environment by um, telling those stories well in your own communities. Mm, and uh, Tony, there's the council that children can contact if they want to find out a little bit more about what's happening in their local area, isn't there? Councils are often a good place to start to get information about such things. No, they certainly are. You know, the regional council does a lot of work and the district council, in particular in this case the Waipapa district council, does a lot of work helping to restore, you know, key ecological habitats. And in the Waipa district, that would include Mount Pirongia, but also Mangatautari as well, Titapui, which is in behind um, Cambridge, and uh, Mangakawa. So, um, yep, come and ask us any question you like. We're more than happy to help. 
good stuff. So councils are a good place to get info from as well. Uh, right, we are now up to question two from Karori School, please. Hi, my name's Rosie, and um, I'd like to ask, how will you protect the Coca-Cola and their eggs from predators? Kia ora, Rosie. Okay. Um, so nesting of kokako um, means that they're very um, vulnerable to, to predators at that time because the female kokako will stay the whole time on the nest and so it's, she's an easy target for rats and possums. Um, now you've heard about Dave um, with his work as an expert um, giving us advice. So his recommendation is around every um, nest that we have uh, with kokako on Mount Purungi, we have to place um, traps around the base of the tree where they'll be nesting. So um, even though we've got our predator numbers down really low so that we know that rats and possums are pretty much non-existent, we still have to put, say, 10 rat traps around the base of every tree and also um, possum traps too. And that's just on the off chance that, that there might be just a couple of rats or a possum passing through or whatever, we don't want to have the run the chance, I suppose, that they might go up that tree and steal those eggs or kill the chicks or even um, like possums can actually kill a nesting female. So we're taking extra precautions on, on Dave's advice to make sure that, that um, it's pretty well um, zero chance that it would be um, one of those introduced predators that would um, yeah, attack the nest. Because mm. really important when you go to all the trouble of translocating birds from Puriora where they're quite happy and the predators are being managed, you wouldn't want to translocate them to somewhere where the predators were not being managed. So very important that Purongia continues to prove a safe place to translocate birds to. So community effort has to keep going to keep those predator numbers down. We've just got to remember in there that um, some of the predators of these birds are also native birds in New Zealand. So um, when we talk about predatory animals, it's really the mammalian pests, the possums, the rats and the mustelids. And in the forest, it's particularly the stoat that's able to climb trees and impact. But harriers, Australasian harriers, we would call them the common hawk. They will also take you know, eggs and small chicks, but that's the way New Zealand forests have always been. Mm, so it's when people have upset that natural balance and added so many more predators, those introduced ones that all came at once when Europeans came to New Zealand and suddenly our native birds had to contest all sorts of predators and ones that weren't flying, land ones, so they didn't have that adaptation to be able to escape from them. So yeah, important to think about our introduced predators when we're controlling those, not the natural ones because that's yeah, just the natural way of the world. Okay, we're now up to question two from Cambridge East School, please. My name is Annalise. My question is, will the Kokako be okay with other birds that live on Mount Longia? Good question, thank you. Okay, well, we think that the Kokako will be okay with the other, um, I suppose, Passerine birds, the other perching birds. As Tony's mentioned, uh, there are predatory birds as well on Mount Pirongia. We do have hawks and we do have the uh, native falcon. And so, again, that's just the natural balance of things where there might be maybe some predation, I guess, by those, those raptors. But we're hoping that uh, we won't lose any adult 
pukako to, to those kinds of predators. And thinking about the, the activity in the forest with the forest birds there, you know, we've got kiruru, tui, got bowlbirds, grey warblers, fantails, tomtits. All of them have got different food sources. They've got um, different favourite trees and things like that. And we're, we're imagining that, that the kōkako will do many um, sort of confrontations, I guess, with the local residents and that there'll be plenty of food for everyone and all of them, yeah, will be able to live happily together. It's a wee bit like a, a town. Like the, one of the towns in New Zealand where you've got all types of people from various races living together. You've got rich people, you've got poor people, you've got business people, you've got people involved in rural industry. But we all seem to get on pretty well together and I think it's much the same in the animal kingdom. Mm, it would be when you started introducing perhaps an alien species that things started to get a little bit interesting. <laughs> interesting analogy. Anyway, thanks very much. And now question number three from Korori School, please. Sounds like someone's got a cold. <laughs> um, my name's Ben and my question is, how much money will it cost and where does the money come from and which organisations will help? Awesome. Big questions there, Ben. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question because all this work does take a lot of um, money, especially uh, for people like Dave who need to be paid. Um, the rest of us are volunteers, but um, it does cost a lot of money to have uh, specialists giving up quite a bit of time to prepare the sites for catching and then transferring them and then monitoring them afterwards. Um, We've done a mixture of our own fundraising and applying for grants, and then we've had private donations as well. So some of the fundraisers we've done, uh, we probably raised about $20,000 by having a concert. And that was really appropriate, given that it was a songbird that we were bringing back to Mount Pirongia. Um, we had done a quiz night, and we've done auctions and things like that. Um, and then the grants we've got, um, the biggest ones have come from uh, our regional council at Waikato Regional Council and also the Department of Conservation. We um, made an application to other special um, conservation or environmental philanthropist um, groups like uh, the Greenwood Foundation and also the Pacific Development and Conservation um, Fund, which was a national one. And then local families, actually, that they're just absolutely wrapped to see... Um, things improve for native diversity in the area that they've lived for a long time, and we've had quite substantial donations from them, actually. And Claire, you have a, a give a little page, don't you? Because I know a school was interested, and I think it was North Street School, yes, that are on today, and they wanted to do a sausage sizzle, so they could donate that money through the give a little page? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, we'd love it uh, to have some donations through our give a little page. We, we get sort of regular donations all the time and we've got a website as well and it's got our, um, our projects and under that there's a Kukako page and there's information there on how to donate and also um, a supporter package so you can look at the various costs of parts of our project you know whether it's translocation catering an individual bird or perhaps the costs involved in monitoring or the health checks or just 
pest control costs for like two hectares. And you might choose one of those um, amounts as a goal for your school to fund that. And then you can donate either via our website, because you, know, you can do a direct uh, bank deposit, or you could use our Give a Little page. Mm, yep, because it's money that makes this stuff happen, money and committed people. So it's really great to have you committed people learning about Kōkako and wanting to help it. It's absolutely fantastic and very much appreciated. Alrighty, we are now up to question three from Cambridge East School, please. Hi, my name is Gosh. Um, my question is, what native plants are best for the Kōkako to live in? So plants, yeah. So what, what are the best uh, native plants for Kōkako to live in? Is that what the question was? Yeah, um, so getting back to our habitat assessment, uh, those um, trees that were identified in the habitat assessment, they're in there because scientists have observed Kōkako in the wild and what um, plants they are feeding from. And so we already know that there's key species that Kōkako like, sort of like us enjoying perhaps hot dogs or burgers or, or ice cream. Uh, they know the, the flavours that the kokako are going to really enjoy. And so um, I've mentioned pigeon wood and um, Caprosma grandifolia um, and then Astelia, which, which um, has, I, I, it harbours the um, scale insect, I think, that kokako are quite um, partial to. And um, I, did know, I did ask Dave, actually, if people uh, wanted to plant um, things in their garden that might attract a kokako that, um, that we'd love to know that because perhaps one day they might come down off the monga and, and visit our gardens and he said that crab apples actually um, are a favourite thing and as well as bananas and um, I think the pseudo panics um, family as well because it has little berries yeah Mm, it was quite interesting to see the kōkako munching on a banana. Never had having tasted one before, but it made the most of it. It really enjoyed it. So it can be introduced things like that that it's not used to, but it can adapt to eat as well. And it, it sounds like kōkako are quite good at giving new foods a go, which is interesting. Okay, that brings us to uh, question four now from Kurori Normal School, please. Hi, I'm AJ, and my question is, how will you track the kokako once they are back in their habitat? Thanks, AJ. <coughs> hey, AJ, yes, we've really got to keep an eye on where the kokako um, do, uh, I suppose, settle, or yeah, how, how they're going to um, uh, behave, I suppose, once they're released on Mount Kuromia. We could have done that with transmitters, so little electronic... Um, that are put on the beds, but we were advised that that's not a good thing because even though it's a more, um, I suppose, sure way of, of knowing where they are because, you know, it's a radio transmitter and you know where they are at all times, but because it weighs um, a, a certain weight, I suppose it can and be hard on the bird and make it, um, I suppose, more vulnerable to predators and things like that. So we're not, we're not um, using transmitters at all what we're doing is relying on those birds that like to defend their territory. So Dave has recorded all of the song of the kōkako that are being released. And in a few months' time, he's going to walk the ridges of Mount Pirongia and he's going to play those songs. And he knows that any kōkako that hears it, they're going to come and investigate. 
And so we're pretty confident that by playing those songs, um, Dave and his team are going to be able to locate uh, all of those birds again. And in fact, that's what they did um, last year after we released the first 20. They were able to find 16 of them um, using that method. Mm. Yeah. There's also been quite a lot of monitoring done at other places around New Zealand using the transmitters that Claire described. So we don't have to always repeat that work. You know, we've got a lot of information about how far they go from, uh, from a release site. So uh, we've got a good base of, of information from other locations as well. Great stuff. And now question number four from Cambridge East School, please. My name is Uma, and is it okay to feed banana kokako even though it's not their natural diet? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm just really impressed with all those people that have picked up that bananas aren't a native food, and you're absolutely right. So um, we don't just choose any food to feed kokako. Um, a lot of work's been done with kokako over the years, um, either in captive breeding programs, so quite a long period of time, and also in temporary aviaries um, where they've been kept for a few days, you know, before they've been translocated. And those people that are handing those birds, they're really wanting to ensure that those birds are well fed and also that they feel happy, that they're not stressed. And they've observed that um, by having a range of foods that's available to kokako, not just native plants, but other um, foods that have got lots of energy in them, that they've, they've tried things like bananas and apples and pears and things like that. And that's how they found out that actually banana is something that kokako really like and um, are pretty comfortable eating. And so in a way, it's kind of like a treat that uh, when they've been captured in that net and they're probably, you know, they're, they're a bit out of sorts and they're not too sure what's happening and, and they might be a bit scared. Um, these people that have already had a lot of experience um, with kokako over time, they know that actually there's a good chance that if they offer a, a banana, it might help those kokako feel a bit better and give them extra energy as they have to face the, the, the journey, you know, to their new home. Mm, all about trying to reduce that stress on the bird so that it can make the most of its new home. And now we're up to question five from Kurori Normal School, please. You just have to unmute your microphone here. That's it. Hi, I'm Aidan. Um, and are you sure that the South Island Kokako can't, can't be brought back? That's a good question. I see a lot of interest from North Street School about the South Island Kokako. And being a South Island girl myself, I'm very interested as well because people do say that they've heard it. And I've spent a bit of time in the forest and I haven't heard one, but a lot of people think that they have. And other scientists and things think that it's extinct. So who knows? But um, guys, mm -hmm. able to answer that question. Yeah, so we did answer some questions about that, I think, yesterday, that um, we'd need to have a confirmed sighting, you know, that there definitely was um, a South Island Kokako, so it's probably not enough to say, I think I saw it, probably need a photograph and an, an exact location of where it was. And then I can assure you that there would be a lot of interest and probably a team go in to capture it and transfer it to a safe place um, where there wouldn't be any predators and 
I, there would be a chance that it could breed. I mean, hopefully there would be a pair found um, and that there would be a chance that um, chicks could be produced. But Tony, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on the matter? Yeah, it's, I guess there's always a possibility, but I think um, pretty remote now. I think if there was a kukaka, South Island kukaka, someone would have seen it and taken a photo of it over the last sort of two decades. But uh, we haven't had that, so pretty remote, I suspect. Mm, I guess we, we live in hope and it's a reason to try and get out to our remote places to see things that we might not otherwise get to see and explore and maybe even hear the haunting call of a South Island kōkako if we're in the South Island and some of those remote places. So a good reason to get out and about and explore. Thank you. And now the last question from Cambridge East School, please. Hi, I'm Malachi, and my question is, how can we protect the kōkako if we go to visit Mount Paronia? Good question. Yeah, thanks, Malachi. <laughs> Spread the word, yeah. I guess, um, well, one way that you could help us, actually, that hasn't been mentioned so far, is that we have an app, um, a Krakow app, that was built for us by Fundamax as the, in the first year of our project. And if you can download that for free and put it on your iPhone. And it means that if you've got that with you on Mount Pirongia and you hear a kokako, you can record a sighting or, a, or report that you've had an interaction. And we get advice of that and it gives the GPS location. And, and so over time with people that are walking through Mount Pirongia and recording where they might have heard or even seen a kokako, we can build up a picture of where there's a lot of activity and we can give that information to Dave and his team when they're monitoring and they, that'll make it easier for them to find those birds and confirm where the territories are. So that, that's um, a nice exercise for people to do if you enjoy walking um, the walking tracks on Mount Pirongia. And, and then there's just good behaviour in, in the forest. So if you're going to go into the forest on Mount Pirongia, we want you to have as low an impact as possible. So we don't want you to be littering. We don't want you to be um, lighting fires or cutting down trees and things like that. And we want you to actually um, be watching out eyes and ears um, of all the things that you can hear and see in, in the native bush so that you understand how all the things interact together and as a big whole, you know, um, uh, make up a healthy ecosystem so that um, those, uh, the people your age um, coming through, that they also have a great relationship with Mount Pirongi and want to keep on looking after it. Mm, it's about respecting the environment and thinking about how it's going to be sustained in the future. And interesting with the kōkako recovery, um, shifting birds around, taking birds from Puriora through to Pirongia. We learnt this morning with um, our Marae visit that the iwi had to consult the iwi from Puriora to be able to get permission to be able to shift birds to Pirongia. So it's about consulting locals and not just taking from the forest unless you have special permissions and things. And, and showing respect for that environment. Thank you very much, Karori Normal School and Cambridge East School. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Fantastic questions. Great to see how much research you've been doing on our kōkako. And I hope you've enjoyed the field trip. We are going to stick around for a few minutes to answer questions that come up in the chat pod. You can go down to the bottom of the screen, the little chat bubble, if you click on that, 
you'll be able to type some questions. And we'll say goodbye at the end, but in the meantime, have we got some questions from our listening calls? Yes, there's one there about how many kokaka are left. I've seen a number like 1,600, but um, uh, you guys might know a better number than that. Charlotte's asking that. Yeah, yeah. So, no, um, that 1,600 pairs is, is um, a pretty accurate figure from the latest um, surveys that have been, that have been done on, on the, the populations that, that are managed um, throughout the country, mainly in the North Island. Um, but of course, every breeding season, because we've got um, predator control in, in pretty much all of those populations, we, we're pretty confident that that number is going to build pretty strongly. Yeah, I think there's a, did John Innes talk about um, the, the um, stretch target for the next five or 10 years or something? Because I'm sure that they're pretty confident that they're gonna, going to get over 2,000 pairs um, for too long, uh, which will be another cause for great celebration, actually. Mm. And I think that 2,000 number from memory was um, a bit of a milestone in that it meant that the species was much more sustainable for the future and that if um, there was an outbreak of predators or some big storm or earthquake or something that affected a population, um, there would be enough around to be able to be resilient to that. So that 2,000 number will be a bit of a milestone and we look forward to that. And really great to know that kōkākō numbers can rise so quickly when predators are controlled and there's enough habitat for them. Good question, Charlotte. I think after 2012, the target was 1,000 pairs. So um, that just goes to show that you know, the management of sites has been very successful. Mm, a really good story of conservation and how um, the efforts of lots of people can have a really, really big impact. And a question here, uh, what is the most kōkākō you have caught in a day? And that's from Isabel. And I guess from our Tuesday efforts where we caught two kōkākō and released them on Perongia, it was a little bit misleading because it's not easy to catch these birds. Yet it seemed to be that Dave and his team were so expert at it that they were able to do it really quickly and catch two birds in one morning. Is there a record for how many birds Dave and the team have caught, Claire? Yeah, well, I don't know. They were talking about how hard it is to catch a, um, a pair even. Um, they had released three on Mount Pirongia in one day uh, last year. Um, but Dave has also been working for another group um, and he was saying he couldn't even, I think it was he caught only two birds in a week. Mm. Yeah, so it can be really slow. Um, yeah, I think that um, seeing Dave at work and how successful he was um, for us, it doesn't mean it's like that all the time, actually. Yeah, it, it's, 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 I think it's quite an art. Yeah, usually you have to be quite patient and wait for hours. And if the weather's not good, the kōkākō aren't going to respond either, especially if it's windy. I know we're running out of time, and you have, if you have to leave us because your bell is going to ring, that's all good, but we really have enjoyed your company this afternoon. We'll keep going with the questions that we've got. Um, what do you do when the kōkākō is unhealthy? Because we, there is a health check that's done on the birds before they can be moved. Clear. Um, absolutely, that's right. And if there was a health check done and, it, and there were questions about just um, whether or not it, it, it was in top health, I think that the, um, the thing to do is not, is not to translocate it because um, it would be better to um, let it stay in, its, in its, um, the environment it is and, and hopefully recover itself because any translocation does, you know, 
create risk factors. And it would be devastating for us as a group if, if we went ahead with putting that sick kokako into a box um, at Puriora, and then when we opened the box at Pirongia, it had actually died. Uh, oh, that would just be yeah, too awful for me to think of. And I'm sure the protocols are that we do those health checks at the time the bird's captured. And if there's any question that, that it might not be, be up to the transfer, it's the, the best thing to do is, is to set it free again. Mm, and we certainly wouldn't want to spread any diseases if it had any to a new population. Great question. Uh, how many babies can a kōkāko have? Okay, so um, the maximum clutch size for a kōkāko is three. And it's always a good sign when Dave is monitoring nests to find three eggs in a nest because if there's fewer than that, he might be thinking, oh, there's not enough food for these kōkāko. They, they're not getting enough energy to be able to produce three eggs. Um, so there might only be one or two eggs. Um, and the other side of it is that, that kōkāko, as well as other birds, they can have more than one nest in a, in a year or in a breeding season. And I think David said that they can have up to three nests. Mm. Yeah. And so, which is really great for us because if, if we've got birds that are settled and have, uh, you know, have got the, 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 a pair, a male and a female early in the season, um, that, that they can start nesting early, there's a good chance that they might be able to produce like six or nine chicks which would mean our, our population would, would climb really quickly. But obviously, um, we can't really expect those sort of maximum numbers all the time. Yeah, um, but uh, the last, uh, last season, we did have one, one nest that we found, and it had three eggs in it, so we were really back with that. It's a good sign that the, the, the forest is, is full of food uh, for those birds, and they're, they're really healthy. Mm. Uh, a, a question here, interesting one, um, because this does happen sometimes with other species. Do kōkāko eat other kōkāko eggs? Yeah, I've never heard of it. I don't know about you, Tony. No, I've never heard of it. Yeah, mm. so I think those eggs are safe, yeah, in that respect. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is good, good to know. So kōkāko are not cannibals. <laughs> okay, where are we now? We've got... Um, a question about the status of kōkāko. Um, I know Doc has a classification of whether uh, kōkāko are rare or endangered, or how are we going on that scale? I think they're at risk recovering, yeah. Um, our group was um, actually had a part to play in changing that classification because they were, I think, um, was it declining, I think? Um, but now the status is at risk of recovering. And that means that numbers are building. We've got um, clusters that are a good size. So uh, the scientists are pretty confident that the, the genetic diversity there is, is robust. And it means that um, as numbers build, you know, there's, there's not gonna be a loss of um, rare um, DNA or alleles that, that mean, I suppose you get a really diverse population. Yeah, so um, you might be interested in finding out what the status are of other native birds and um, seeing what might be done to improve those. I mean, we would love it to have um, all of the native birds in New Zealand as um, being healthy and not, not at risk in any way in that respect. Mm. Yep, absolutely. And um, there was a question about whether people kill kōkāko, but um, certainly that would be illegal, and I don't mm. know of it happening very often at all. It's not like 
down in the South Island where sometimes people have been known to kill the lights of Kia because they can sometimes attack sheep and can be a bit of a nuisance. But I haven't heard of people killing hōkako because they, they don't prove to be much of a nuisance to people. Not that anybody should be killing any wildlife. So I don't think that happens. I would be certainly very disappointed if it, if it did. Um, time for perhaps one more question uh, about the number of eggs. If, what if a kōkako lays 20 eggs? I don't think that would be possible, would it? No. Um, how, how often do they produce eggs, though, Claire? Well, as I said, um, they can produce up to three nests in, in the, like from spring through to summer. Um, yeah, so, but even that would mean a maximum of nine eggs, I mm. guess. Yeah, yeah. But generally, if they, if they have a successful nest, if they lay the eggs, raise the chicks, then they're often content with that. The reason they do re-nest is they lose a clutch. The clutch has been predated by a mammal, you know, beforehand. So, um, you know, we wouldn't expect them to have repeated nests unless they were very, sort of quite an ex um, exceptional circumstance. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> Thanks very much, guys. And I know people are leaving us because it is their bell time. So we'll say goodbye and let you get back to uh, what you're doing or heading home for the day. But thank you very much for joining us on the field trip. I hope you've enjoyed it and can join us on another one soon. Kaki Bye, guys. Bye, Bye, -bye. Thompson twins. The only ones left.